You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. And I'm Kathleen Russo, and I'm finally hosting Here's the Thing. Oh my goodness, Kathy, how long have you and I worked on this podcast? It's only been 10 years, Alec. 10 years? Well, of course you should have a turn hosting one of our staff pick shows from the archives this summer. But just this once. Okay, Alec, thanks. One of the perks of this job, as the executive producer of Here's the Thing, is you get to meet so many people you admire and respect, including people whose posters hung on your bedroom wall in upstate New York during the 1970s, and people whose LPs you listen to on your turntable over and over, so often the vinyl warped or wore thin. My archival picks today are two of these greats, poet, writer, musician, and the ultimate punk rocker, Patti Smith, and one of the best guitarists and vocalists in the world, rock legend Peter Frampton. You get these phone calls in quick succession, you're number one in, in the charts, you know. It's the biggest selling record of all time. You've just outsold Carol King's tapestry. We'll hear Alex's conversation with Peter Frampton in a bit, but first, let's hear from music icon Patti Smith. Alex's conversation with Patti Smith was recorded live in 2016 at the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey. When I called Patti's manager to book her on the show, I was surprised and frankly thrilled when Patti called me back herself to tell me she was a huge fan of Alex. And of course, she would be a guest. I love when we record live shows for the podcast because it brings a whole new energy and feel. As you'll hear, this was a love fest with the audience. And Patty, no stranger to live shows, was the perfect guest. Alex started by asking if she'd have the same career if she started out today. Actually, I have no idea because I didn't really come into the music business. I was, I came, I wound up in music by mistake. I'm not really a musician. I didn't really want to be a musician or a singer. I just wanted to... I wanted to be a poet and a writer, and it was accidental. So would it accidentally happen now? I don't think so. I think I would have to be more focused on what I wanted, but also because I'm so untechnological, 
and uh, things. I mean, I'm just not really suited for right now, so uh, probably I would have to be like a physicist. You'd be a driver. You'd, I would drive have the to... ba- you'd be the person that drove the band in the gig. Oh, you don't even drive, No, right? I don't know how to drive, so I couldn't do that. It's true. She doesn't have a license. I said, you ever live in L.A.? She said, no, I don't swim and I don't drive. That's true. But if you came in now, you'd be a scientist, you said? Well, I, I, I don't know what I would be, but I, I don't think I would have a problem no matter where I came in. You know, I, I would figure out something. I'm pretty scrappy. Right. <laughs> now, but when you say that you weren't a musician, how did that begin for you? Well, I mean, I came to New York in 1967, wanted to be an artist, and I also wrote poetry. And after I, I, I just started writing more poetry and then... Uh, was shepherded by people like Allen Ginsberg and, and uh, William Burroughs and Gregory Corso, and they all read their poetry, so I wanted to read poetry. But I didn't want to be boring because I went to a lot of poetry readings and they were Snoresville, you know? They were like, <laughs> sorry, but really boring. So I just started like, Do they have, you know. At least have good wine? Do they have good <laughs> wine? I didn't even drink. You know, I don't do anything interesting, really. You don't? But, uh, I mean, I'll have a shot of tequila. Good night, everybody. <laughs> you don't no, have a I drug mean, problem? I'll, no, I never had a drug problem. Um, my, I, thought, I thought we were going to do at least 20 minutes on that. I have a drug problem. I was going to do my half. <laughs> no, actually, I was such a sickly kid um, that, and my parents worked so hard to keep me alive that, you know, when I, when I came out into the world, the last thing I was going to do is fuck that up, you know? <laughs> I just, I'm not, I don't have a self-destructive vent, but also when I was a kid, my mother was a chain smoker, and she, I mean, real, true chain smoker, and when she ran out of cigarettes and she didn't have money, she would pace all night long. I'd get up at midnight and see my poor mom pacing because she didn't have a cigarette, and I thought then, I'm never going to be dependent on anything because I thought, what would happen if you got stranded on a desert island and you didn't have cigarettes? You'd, like, fall apart. So it was like an early lesson in uh, what I didn't You'd want in life. You'd be doing a lot of pacing on a desert island <laughs> if you didn't have cigarettes. Probably 10, 20 years of pacing. You have to grow tobacco. You have to grow your own uh, cigarettes. But uh, I feel like somehow I didn't answer one of, uh, some question. Oh, I know. It doesn't you're, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want to do. How I wound up singing. Oh, I just wound up singing like to make up little, singing little songs a cappella between poems to make it a little more interesting and then sort of rap in poems. And it was just uh, organic. Did it you just, copy that from somebody? You just did it on your own. You didn't see anybody else doing that? No, I mean, I saw like uh, beat poets or, I mean, just, I think of everybody that I was influenced by, at that time in my life, Johnny Carson was the one. I just thought, like... He didn't have a drug problem either. Yeah, I'm not surprised. But, I mean, but just the fact that Johnny Carson, his his ability to improvise or to get himself out of any situation, that was always what I was looking for. If I was on stage, got in a bad situation, find my way out of it. You grew up in South Jersey? And you're kind of tough the way you grew up. Your dad, what did your dad do for a living? He was, worked in a factory. And what did your mom do? She's a waitress. And, and how many kids in your family? Three girls, one boy, and I was the oldest. You're so. the oldest. Yep. And uh, it was tough. 
Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, it was financially tough. tough. We had yeah. a, a, it was in those ways, very tough. But in another way, we had, it was very magical because I had really great siblings. I had a great imagination, read lot, hundreds of books. My parents, we knew that they had a lot of strife and stress, but, you know, it was just the world seemed so magical. It wasn't so bad for us. Yeah. Books were my salvation. Wow. And so I, I didn't think of things. The only bad thing was when I'd be hungry. I mean, truthfully, I liked to eat. I was really skinny and a real, I, I was always hungry. And that was my biggest problem. You're kidding, problem. you were really skinny back then? Yeah. Huh. Really skinny. Yeah. And then when you uh, left home, where'd you go? New York. I left when I was 20. And basically, I left to get a job because in... Uh, South Jersey and Philadelphia, the New York shipyard closed down and there were like 30,000 jobs overnight were lost and there wasn't any work, no matter how low, a factory job, nothing, and there was no more work and I needed a job, so I went to New York City to get a job. And where'd you get a job? Um, in a bookstore. I got a, a series of bookstores until I really landed a great bookstore job in Scribner's bookstore, and I worked there for about five years. I think that really tells a lot about you. That really pretty much sums it up. You're home in Jersey. You can't get a job. You're starving. You go into New York to get a job. I thought you were going to say in a restaurant. Well, no, so I did. you eat all you, the time. Instead, you go to a bookstore. <laughs> but okay. A different kind of food. But no, you know what happened? My mother was a waitress, and she tried to give me a job at her counter, but I was so clumsy and such a daydreamer, and she fired me. And uh, <laughs> so then she was upset Tough that I was leaving home, but she, got, she let me take my white uniform and my wedgies. So the, the first day I get, I'm on Times Square, and of course Times Square was all different then, you know. And uh, I got a little a job immediately because they needed a waitress at a place, a little Italian place called Joe's um, on Times Square. And within like two hours, I dumped one of the, I had a giant tray, tripped and the whole uh, tray of veal parmigianas uh, went on this woman's tweed suit. Not only was I fired, but my three hours pay went to her cleaning bill. So I went back to Port Authority, left the waitress uniform and the wedgies in the girl's bathroom and thought maybe somebody can use them. And uh, then I, looked around for a, a better job. How does art, poetry, music come into your life when you're in New York, when you're 20 years old? Well, first it was just getting a job. I didn't get a job the first or second day. I mean, I was sleeping in the subway, sleeping in uh, Central Park, sleeping at the, the cemetery in Flushing or Greenwood or wherever it was, and near where Herman Melville was buried. And... Uh, it took a little while, and truthfully... <laughs> but later on, I read the story about Bobby Dick, but go ahead. Is this, I did, I, it I wasn't really until I met, I met Robert Maplethorpe, and uh, we met a couple of times, but I was in a, a bit of a jam because a, a grown-up asked me to, to go out to eat. He was probably 40, but I was like 20. To me, he seemed like, you know, he was a grown-up, you know. And... Uh, I, I was really afraid. My mother used to say, don't go out with a stranger because, you know, they just want one thing. And I thought, oh, 
I was so hungry, and he said he would take me to dinner. And he took me to the Empire State Building diner, and I remember to this day he ordered, uh, we ordered, he ordered me swordfish, and it was five dollars. And I thought he's going to want everything for five dollars. <laughs> and I was petrified, and so I, I ate the, I couldn't even eat it, and so I was so hungry. So the whole time you were eating, you were thinking, I'm going to eat. Maybe I should leave now. Yep. Exactly. I'm going to run out that door, but all these potatoes are so good. I'll have just a couple more potatoes. <laughs> then I'm going right out that door. He'll never know. So we walked. But you didn't bolt. No, uh, I didn't know what to do. Then you we walked. Dessert. We walked. Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't have any dessert. We walked all the way down to uh, Tompkins Square Park, and we were sitting there. And then all of a sudden, he said, uh, "I have an apartment uh, right around here." Would and he asked me if I wanted to come up. Did he say it up. like that though? Honestly, yeah, it was really creepy. He actually I had have an like apartment right up there. <laughs> he had like he had like a turtleneck, a white turtleneck. I remember, and a medallion. I mean, he was really. <laughs> So you creepy. went on a date with Austin Powers? I, that's so funny. No, he was supposed to be a science fiction writer, but uh, I was so. And, okay. and when he said that, I thought, "Oh my God, this is the moment!" You know, and I everything my mother ever told me for like ten years of my life. And I was sitting there, paralyzed, figuring out what to do. And I looked, and I see Robert Maplethorpe come in, you know up through, just coming, it's almost like a cloud parted, and here he comes with like long curly hair and a sheepskin vest and, you know, and his dungarees, and I had only met him once or twice, and I I didn't even know his name, and I just met him sorta, and so I ran up to him and I said, "Uh, do you remember me? And he goes, yeah, and I said, will you pretend you're my boyfriend? And he says, okay. So I bring him to the science fiction guy and I said, this is my boyfriend, he's really mad. I gotta go, goodbye. And then I said to Robert, this is so stupid, but I did, I said, run. (laughs) And Robert and I ran, we ran, we ran, we ran away. (laughs) And And now the guy in the turtleneck with the medallion on is the president-elect of the United States. (laughs) Boy, did you play your cards wrong. You know, and then my life began. Life began that night because Robert and I just roamed around. We roamed around the East Village and everywhere all night long till two in the morning, just talking away. And finally, almost simultaneously, we both said, do you have a place to stay? Neither one of us had anywhere to live. We didn't have any money. But uh, the difference is Robert had knew some kids at Pratt, and he knew, he knew how to get the key to this one guy's apartment, uh, where his art was stored. So we went there, and we went to his place, and he showed me all his drawings and what he was doing. And after that night, we became inseparable, and that set us, at least me, on a path, you know, where of drawing and painting and evolving and writing poetry and... A and you fell life. in love with him. Yeah, we've... we've you were we've, in love. Yes, you were together we were for love. a long, long time. Yes. Through, through many things, yeah. Well, I was going to get into that, actually. <laughs> but, but you're with him for a long, long time, and then things change for you as well, in terms of your career. Well, I mean, at first... I mean, the thing is, is that I never cared about a career. I have to say, none of those things 
um, being in a business, music business, career, money, what, what I always wanted, no matter how conceited it sounds, is I wanted to do something great. I wanted to write something as great as Pinocchio or The Scarlet Letter or, you know, just do something wonderful, write a wonderful book. I didn't really care about, and still don't, I don't care about having a career or any of that stuff. I do my work, and in the process, I've had some great successes. I've had things that have had me banned from the world. I've had, you know, I've, I've, I've been in trouble. I've done, you know, I've left it all behind. It's not important to me. What's always important to me is really just to do something good, to do something that's uh, enduring. Patti Smith talking about her relationship with the artist Robert Maplethorpe. If you're enjoying this show from our archives, did you know we have over 250 more available for your listening pleasure? Be sure to check them out at heresthething.org. After the break, Alec and Patty Smith talk about her marriage to MC5's Fred Sonic Smith and motherhood. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. 
the ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Kathleen Russo, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Let's get back to Alex's conversation with Patty Smith and what her career really means to her. So when you started to have success, was that something that was, because it was so unfamiliar to you, there are those people who, I'm not going to say the word failure, they're more comfortable in anonymity than they are being successful and famous because it's familiar. Did you find that when you were becoming famous as a musician? Because primarily you became famous as a musician, as a singer, Well, at a first, in the beginning, in 1978, I had my first big success with the song I wrote with Bruce Springsteen, right. Because the Night... I thought it was, thank you. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was exciting to have a song on the radio. I didn't think of it in terms of success or failure. It was just really cool to be on the radio. And back then, you know, having a single and meant, you know, your records were in the window and, and you could, you know, you played bigger places and met more people. But by 1979, truthfully, I could see that success was to keep going. You, I, I was doing less work, less meaningful work, evolving less as a person and an artist, and just getting more successful. And I thought, that's, that's not why I w- was put on the planet. I wasn't put on the planet to you know, climb the ladder of success. I was here to do certain kind of work. And so um, I left. I left the music business in 79. You separated from uh, Maplethorpe when? What year? Well, Robert and I separated as a couple in like 72, but never as, we were just the same, only we weren't, you know, doing it anymore, you know. (laughs) But we didn't change how we were. We were always just the same. We were just, you know, had different physical partners. So we never quite really separated. You know, you were with him, and still connected to him, even when he was very sick and when he was, and when he died. Correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, I'm still connected with him. I right. still think about him every day, and and uh, the things that I learned from him or that we we did together inform the work that I do. I mean, we we bonded so young through art. I mean, of course, you know, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We did all the things young people do. But I think that is, as he felt freer and freer as an artist and a human being, his nature, first he had to come out as an artist. Then the next thing that happened is he blossomed and felt his sexual nature. We had to weather that. We had to, you know, try to navigate what this meant, what it meant to our relationship, what it meant... And, and it was difficult, and it took a few years because neither one of us wanted to part. But eventually, we had to part as boyfriend and girlfriend because he had to be who he needed to be. When did you meet your husband? You eventually got married? I met my husband in 1976 in Detroit, and I was on the road, and I met him in Detroit, and I saw him. It was, it's like a, it's really like a a song. 
I saw him across a, a crowded room. He was just standing there in a blue overcoat. I didn't know who he was, and I thought, that's the boy I'm going to marry. I swear to you, that's true. How old were you at the time? I was about 76. I was about 28, 29, 28. I don't know. Did you walk up and tell him that right oh, away? Oh, no, you, no. Did you say, I need no, to tell you something no, very important? No, not at all, but... Lenny Kay actually introduced us, and he said, uh, Fred Smith, Patty Smith. <laughs> we just looked at each other, and I don't know. And we finally, uh, um, we had a long-distance relationship. In fact, because the night, uh, we had a long-distance relationship, and neither one of us had a whole lot of money, and to make phone calls was expensive, long-distance calls. I always, to this day, I hear people, my boyfriend only called me three times today, and I think, Jesus. You know, it's like, I, I'd have to wait all week to get one phone call from, from Fred. And um, actually, am, am I going off the course to... No, there is no course. There is no course, yeah. You're my kind of guy. Yeah, come on, man. We're going back to I'm your kind of passenger, too, because... I, I just flicked the autopilot about 30 minutes ago, man. We don't... We're not going anywhere <laughs> particular. Because I don't know how to drive and I have no sense of direction. I'm a really good passenger because I can never tell if anybody's lost. <laughs> you know, and I apply that to all, every part of life. But when you met your husband, and what did he do? Was he a musician? He's a, he was a musician. He uh, played with the MC5. He was a master guitarist. He was really one of our great guitarists. And... Uh, and uh, he's just such a beautiful man. You know, we just decided, you know, we, we wanted to evolve as human beings, and he wanted children, and we just, we just decided to withdraw from public life and really know each other, and when, when we had children, they would really know who we were, and, um, and so we did. For how long? Till his, he passed away, and... The end of 94, so 16 years. 16 but, years, what was it like? Did you paint? <laughs> I, no, I didn't paint because um, it was just the way our living quarters were. I didn't really have the space to do something like that, but I wrote every day. I, I could have never written Just Kids or the books that I'm writing now had I not had 16 years of enforced discipline. Because I've always been very undisciplined, and then unless I had a job or something. But then having uh, children, um, I, ha I had to learn to wake up at five in the morning and from five to eight was my writing time. Everybody was asleep, it was my time. And it was really hard at first, but then after a while I got in a groove and I still write early in the morning. And I really learned how to develop my craft. And uh, it was hard because there's no cafes around. There was no bookstores, a lot of things. The biggest, the, the most hardest thing is in New York, you can walk out the door and get a cup of coffee in about two minutes, practically anywhere. But where I was, the closest thing was 7-Eleven, which was about, you know, half a mile away. So I'd have to, every Saturday, I'd walk to 7-Eleven, my cafe, get a glazed donut and a coffee, and I was, I was in town, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but I love my life. It wasn't easy, 
because, you know, I had to do all the... We, we did everything. We didn't have nannies or housekeepers or even babysitters. We did everything. And I'm not the most adept at stuff, you know, so my poor kids, you know, their school uniforms and stuff, my daughter's little pleated, you know, jumper was like always a little jaggedy and <laughs> their blouses and their shirts were a little dingier than the other because I didn't like using bleach and things like that. But, but I, I love my kids. I love my husband, you know, and it was a lot of certain amount of sacrifice and, and uh, you know, uh, but I, I, was I love my life. There was talk about you, because I just find this so interesting. You know, the, the, was there much talk about you, like get back, getting back in there and getting back into your life to make money as a breadwinner for everybody's band? You well, grew up in such a tough Well, when home. we really, the, really needed... I always, I always feel like I got to work all the time. Well, when we really needed money, we lived so simply. I mean, when we really needed money in 86... Uh, we did one record together, and uh, that kept us going. And, um, but it's just, you know, I, 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 I liked my life. I never, I didn't expect to be on the great stages of Europe. You know, to me it was really fantastic that I got the opportunity. I never thought I would do a record. I, in, but in doing so, I got to travel, which in, I never thought I would ever have the money to travel and go to Finland, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I mean, all the places, I'm just joking, but I did get to go to Finland, even though I had never dreamed of going to Finland. But I mean, I got to all the places, I saw Paris and Rome and Vienna and all these places um, because I had a band and sang and, and did records, but it wasn't it wasn't my focus in life. It wasn't my great, great vision. And so when I didn't do it, I was grateful that I got the opportunity, but I wasn't mourning the situation that I wasn't doing it. You know, I wasn't missing the applause. It wasn't like a Judy Garland movie or something. I just, you know, I felt, you know, really happy writing, you know, watching my kids grow. I did what I needed to do. Are you glad I was happy. that you had the experience to be a mother? Oh, yeah. I lo- my kids are awesome. And the funny thing is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say this because my kids know. I never wanted kids. I just wanted to be an artist. I didn't want to have kids. And I came from a big family, and I helped raise my siblings, and I just wanted to be free. And it was Fred who wanted children. And I loved him so much, and I thought, well, I can do that. You know, I... But I never expected to just love my kids so much and just love being a mother. And since Fred died when he was 45, um, you know, I have them. I have them. I, I see so much of him in them, not just in the way they look or certain gestures, but it, even in their music, the tones of my son's guitar. He'll be playing a guitar solo. He never heard his father play guitar because they were quite it's young there. it's fred's tones jesse at the piano she is just his feel was writing songs difficult and kind of laborious or did they come to you or both 
Well, I, I mean, uh, writing songs isn't my first vocation, and I, I, it's, I'm not as facile at writing songs as other things. Also, since I don't really, I only, I play a few chords on the guitar so I can figure out some things. But sometimes songs come, songs are so strange, sometimes they just come as a gift. I've woke up in the morning and there's a song there and I quick write it down. It just comes full with the music and the words. And then there's other songs that have taken three years to, you know, have a piece of music and, and write words. But it's, it's labor, songwriting, and there's a lot of responsibility um, responsibility to the uh, composer, because most of my songs, the music was written by a band member or Fred, and, uh, and, and so you, you want to uh, please them, but it also has to be something that I can sing. But the easiest, one of the easiest things was to write um, to Because the Night, because Bruce, I, I had a, a cassette with a, um, it was a demo, and I, I really didn't want to listen to it. You know, it was given to me by my producer, Jimmy Iovine, and he coaxed Bruce into letting me finish it. Bruce couldn't figure out. He was having trouble writing verses to the song. He had the chorus, and Jimmy gave it to me, and I didn't want to listen to it because I thought um, I wanted to write. I wanted my band to write their own songs, and... Uh, and Bruce is from like a different part of New Jersey than me, and uh, he's sort of in the middle, and I'm from South Jersey, and it's like, I really, I just didn't want, you know, a, a sort of a middle New Jersey. You didn't New want Jersey. Bruce Springsteen to pollute your song, in which sense. <laughs> Don't bring that middle Jersey shit into my music, No, I'm, I, no I'm from New Jersey, it's just I'm from like the cooler part of Jersey. Right. But I was, this is what I was saying before, but one night I was waiting, Jimmy had given me this tape when we were doing this album Easter, and every night Jimmy would say, hey, listen to the tape, did you listen to the tape? Did you listen to the tape? And I said, uh, not yet. And he called me up, did you listen to the tape? Did you listen to the tape? Uh, not yet. So, uh, you know, it was just sitting there in my little apartment on McDougal Street. And uh, so anyway, Fred was supposed to call me, and it was like seven, and I got all ready. I look cool, and I'm sitting there, and the phone's sitting there, and I'm waiting for Fred to call. And seven goes by, 7.30, no Fred, you know, say eight o'clock, I'm pacing around. And, you know, I was like obsessive, you know, I wanted, you know, the phone call, and I couldn't, I was just pacing and pacing, couldn't figure out what to do with myself. And I noticed this, the darn tape, and I thought, listen to that darn tape. So I put it on my cassette machine and put it on, and I listened to it, and it's in my key, perfectly arranged, anthemic, has a really great chorus, and I thought, ugh, it's one of those darn hits. It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. So I listened to it, and it was, you know, it was captivating. And I'm waiting for Fred and waiting for Fred. Finally, he calls me up like 11 o'clock at night. But when he called me, uh, because it took so long, um, I had finished all the lyrics to the song. And uh, that's why in the second verse it says, uh, let's see, have I doubt when I'm alone, love is a ring, the telephone. <laughs> I was waiting for Fred to call. So, and... Uh, 
so I wrote the words, and, uh, and, and thanks to Bruce, I had my, uh, my first hit. Alex spoke with Patti Smith before a live audience in 2016. Now, to one of my most heartfelt teenage crushes, Peter Frampton. He arrived early at the studio in 2012, and I had the privilege to sit down and talk with him before his conversation with Alec. He was so down-to-earth and friendly, and mostly we talked about his children. Both Alec and I are huge fans, so we were so looking forward to this interview, which began with Peter's obsession with sound. Sound is very inspirational to me. I remember the reason that I wanted to learn guitar was because I heard the sounds of all these people on TV and on the radio, electric guitar, very young. And something, I have a very acute sense of sound and I've always had that. If I don't have a good sound, I can't play very well. So I've always worked out what makes a good sound? How do you get a good sound? Technically. Technically. And then one of the first sessions I ever did, Bill Wyman of the Stones produced it when I was 14. And the first engineer I worked with was Glyn Johns, right. who is, if people don't know, he's one of the most famous engineers of all time. Stones engineer. Yeah. yeah. Zeppelin, Eagles, yeah. The, the band, the, <laughs> just you. everybody. Yeah, Humble Pie. Yeah. And then being a gadget freak early on, I just was over like a little birdie on their shoulder and I was, well, what, what, what's that? What are you doing there? I just learned how to engineers, so I, I really enjoy that part of it as well, immensely. How do you end up as a 14-year-old <laughs> and Wyman wants to produce your track? Well, I started playing guitar just before I was eight years old, and... Were either of your parents musical? Yes. Um, you grew up in England? Yes. Where? About 12 miles south of London in Bromley, mm. Kent, and... Um, my mother was definitely would have been an entertainer. She was, but uh, my grandparents wouldn't allow her to become an actress. She wanted to be an actress. Her father was a singer. Yes, we have a lot of musical genes. And, and your dad? Uh, my dad played. Uh, his teacher, an artist. He played guitar in a college dance band before the war. Before Did the you second. Did you up hearing him play guitar? He was more into his art, mm -hmm. but he did. He was the one that taught me how to sing Michael Row the Boat, you know, <laughs> with two chords, basically. Okay. And then Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley was another biggie for me. Uh -huh. Then it was Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, and our English, The Shadows, Cliff Richards and The Shadows. So that's what, how I started playing guitar because of American music, obviously. That's what we all did, and we were all clamoring for American music before the Beatles. Right. And then so I was known in, locally as this young little upstart good guitar player, very young, ended up in a semi-pro band still at school that had the drummer that was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones called Tony Chapman, who introduced Bill to the Stones. He didn't end up staying in the Stones, and Bill felt he owed him a, uh, a favor, I would say, said, look, put a band together and I'll produce it. And he comes into the music shop I'm working on the Saturdays when I'm about 14 and restringing guitars for the guy there. And he said... I want you to be in my band, you know. I said, well, I'll have to speak to Dad, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> First thing I know, we're in a van. We pick up Bill Wyman in Penge, 
<laughs> who sits in the front. The van goes very quiet. We've got a Rolling Stone in the front seat. Yeah. We go up to London and I meet Glenn Johns and we make a record. Man, like everyone is talking about soul today. But you know what I mean? What was the record? It was called Hole in My Soul. And it was a cover of an American song. And um, what was the name of the band? The Preachers. So that was it. And um, so music was your entire life. Yes. You were in the guitar shop in Kent. Yeah. Fixing strings on guitars for yes, people. Yes. Shining guitars up. And the next thing you know, Bill Wyman's in the car, and you're off to go do "Hole in My Soul" with the Preachers. Yes. A man like he walks around us so much, his shoe fell off. What year is this? This is '64. So the Stones were and the Beatles were in full swing by then. Yes, and, and in recording. fact, we did that year. Uh, the Stones were given Ready Steady Go. They took over the show Ready Steady Go for one week, and each one of the Stones had their choice of act to be on. You know, and of course, Bill chose us. So I'm on TV when I'm just before I'm. I turn 15. Is there any I'm, footage of that? Do you have footage uh, of that? If anybody's got it, Bill's got it because right. he's he's the historian. You know, but. Uh, that was pretty amazing. Do you miss living in England? You're such an American in so many ways. Yes. You lived here for years, haven't you? Years yes, and years. 70, 75, I, I came to New York, actually. I miss my family, my brother and his family. I miss friends and stuff, but my children are here. Right. When I first came to America with Humble Pie and I turned on the radio, I said, I'm moving here just seemed like this was the place that was all happening. That was the old and this is the new. Yeah, and I'd lived through the swinging 60s of London, you sure. know, and that was exciting too. And I love England, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I just don't think I would ever live there again. I just, yeah. I'd be too far from my kids. Yeah, this is, this is home now. Yeah. So when you finish the, the Hole in My Soul <laughs> uh, on uh, uh, the show with Bill Wyman, he's your selection there on the show, what happens then? Then um, I'm 16 it's school holidays in the summer of 66. Big local band, The Herd, come to me and say, uh, we saw you in The Preachers and we're having a change around. Would you come and, and help us out for the summer? 16. Okay. <laughs> so I said, okay. So it gets close to September when I'm going to go back to school and they said, here's an offer. We want you to be the lead guitarist and the lead guitarist is going to play bass and we want to be a four-piece instead of five-piece and would you join the herd? I said, oh, I hell. I've got to go back to school, do my sixth form, get my A-levels and go to Guildhall <laughs> yeah. School of Let Music. Me grow up. That was my plan, to go to music college. You know? Let me grow a beard. You're right, <laughs> at <laughs> least. Let me, let me get a few chest hairs here, <laughs> then I'll call you. Yeah, I haven't even had a shandy yet. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. <laughs> so I went to Dad and Mom and I said, look, I really want to do this. This is a professional band, you know, they're great. They're a big band and... Um, my dad said, well, and they knew that this was on the cards, you know, this was coming up, that they knew by this time I was going to be a musician. And so he said, well, look, if you left here and you got a job at the post office, you'd get 15 pounds a week. I want to get an assurance from this man that you're going to get 15 pounds a week. I said, well, if you can do that deal, Dad, that'll be great. I don't think they earn enough to pay themselves 15 pounds. He said, well, that's what you, I'm going minimum wage for you. So that was the last deal my dad did for me. 
um, because we started to become a little better and earn more money. Beginning, they couldn't pay themselves 50. Eventually, it was a bargain. Yeah, because they yeah. paid me 15, they got 50. Your father was no Brian Epstein. <laughs> so that was the end of him as a manager. Yeah. Everything changed, and the herd became had like three big top ten hits, and and I became very well known in Europe as a guitar player singer. Now, by the time you leave the herd, you leave them in what year? The herd after the the uh, these three big hits and an album, we realized that we were losing money still, and and um, there was no reason because we saw the figures, what was coming in, and what we were getting paid and all that. So we reached out and Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane of the Small Faces sure. said, look, we've been through this. We've been screwed, you know, by management or business manager, whatever. They clued us in, which was very nice of them, and said they'd help us produce a track or two on, on the next album we were going to do, which they did. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in with the Small Faces now at various functions and, uh, and wanted to join the Small Faces. That wasn't to be... Steve wanted me to join the Small Faces, but they weren't so thrilled with that. So in the end, uh, Steve called me up and said, look, I've left the Small Faces, let's form a band. And that's how Humble Pie basically formed in right at the end of, in 68. So you're with Humble Pie and you're in England. Yes. And you perform with them for how many years? Uh, 68, 69, 71, four years. And well, how would you characterize that period for yourself? Did you enjoy it? The, Unbelievable. Yeah. They were very popular. Uh, yes. In the States as well. Yes. That band brought me to America. Where'd you play? Fillmore oh, East. Right. <laughs> That's where we started. We, I met, I, I mean, probably one of the first gigs I met Bill Graham. You know, I, I don't. You realize now when I look back, it was the beginnings of the creation of rock and roll shows. Yeah. Truly. Bill Graham was the guy on how to do it live. And why did Humble Pie end? A couple of reasons. I was feeling claustrophobic in the band because we started off very democratic and doing it, all different types of music. And now our, our stage act was narrowing and we were just doing more, more of the heavy rock and roll, which I love, don't get me wrong. That's my riff, I Don't Need No Doctor. That's me jamming at, at a sound check in at Madison Square Garden. And Steve just jumped up on the stage and started singing I Don't Need No Doctor over that riff. He and I were very much... That's him singing. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that says, it's been a gas! Yeah, we go home on Monday. <laughs> we go home on Monday. But what I tell you, we're not better gas this time. Really been <laughs> yeah. How old is he then? Oh, he was probably a couple of years older than me. Okay, so yeah, he's still yeah, one with yeah. the kid. But you feel claustrophobic. Why? Well, because we want, I wasn't uh, being able to do the music, all of this music that I wanted to do. Humble Pie started off really split between acoustic and electric. And also I was coming into my own, and Steve and I fought like brothers. The Glimmer Twins. Yes, that's which, which is why Humble Pie was so fiery, I think because musically it was phenomenal. You know, sometimes we'd agree and sometimes we just wouldn't agree. 
I, it was very sad for me because I knew it would upset them. Um, but I just you felt left. that I had to. Uh, it was time to go on. And did you know where you wanted to go? No idea. I knew that I was. I didn't want to form another band. I wanted to become a solo artist you at did. that point. Yes. Why? Because I wanted to make all the decisions because I'm a complete control freak. <laughs> but, but seriously, did you feel yeah. you wanted creative? Yeah. You wanted I wanted more to try things Elton. that, yeah, I wanted to try things that maybe other people wouldn't want to try. You know, I wanted to do it. And I have to say that it, it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have had a solo career had it not been for Humble Pie. I learned so much from working with Steve Marriott. I have to hand him a lot of the credit for the sort of things that he introduced me to listen to as well. Music, blues and Bill Black combo and stuff like that. That was really influential to me. So that's why it was a, a, a bittersweet thing leaving. I wanted to leave, but I didn't want to leave. And then, of course, as soon as I left, the live album that I had a big hand in mixing, because I'm the gadget freak and the engineer, with uh, Eddie Kramer, Rockin' the Fillmore, comes out. I've left at, right at that point, and it zooms up the charts. It's Humble Pie's first gold record, and I'm going... Holy crap. <laughs> that's it. It's the first big blooper of my career. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I made a big mistake. Seems like dad's back on the job. Yeah. Oh, no. Yes. Is he in the office again? <laughs> I framed into this time. Yes, absolutely. So then it was four studio albums before we did Comes Alive, you know, and so you a lot four? of lot of touring. And where are you living then? You still hadn't uh, moved here yet. I was still living in England until 75 when I finished the fourth solo record in England and then moved over. I actually moved to New York and stayed at the Mount Kisco Holiday Inn on New Year's Eve in 1974. Swinging. Yeah, so basically the first day of 75 was I was now living in America. When you do Comes Alive, how much of the music on that is new music on that album? How much of it was stuff you mined from the previous four solo albums? It was basically all stuff that came from the four studio albums and Rock On from Shine On was a Humble Pie track that I'd written. It was actually from five albums, so it was like six years' worth of work mining that went into that one live record. And for people who don't know, that live performance was recorded in multiple locations or in one? Most of it was one location. Which was? A Winterland in San Francisco, a Bill Graham gig, where The Last Waltz was filmed. Two nights before, we'd played the Marin Civic Center, and we'd done two shows there, so we recorded that. I think a couple of numbers came from there, Doobie War, I think, comes from there, maybe one of the acoustic songs. But Winterland was the first big headline uh, show we'd ever done, I'd ever done, with my name on the ticket. People were coming to see me for, for because the, the album right prior to uh, Comes Alive, just Frampton, was the biggest one so far, biggest seller. It had done sold like 300,000 copies, which was mega for me. That was better than all the so others. So things in, in that four-album run prior to the live album in Winterland, things were getting better. The, the sales it, it was, were going yeah. They, they were. But that one was definitely On was setting me up. It was setting me up for something. Peter Frampton. 
Alec Baldwin has interviewed a lot of rock legends over the years on Here's the Thing. And you can listen to all of them on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. After the break, Peter Frampton talks to Alec about The Making of Frampton Comes Alive, one of the best-selling live albums in history. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Kathleen Russo, and this is Here's the Thing. Frampton Comes Alive has sold over 11 million copies worldwide. It's a double album pulled from three venues, including Winterland in San Francisco. Okay, so let's cut the bullshit. <laughs> let's cut the bullshit. You're in Winterland. Yes. And would you say, and the show goes on what time? Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, nine o'clock? Yeah, probably... Probably quarter to nine, something like that. So somewhere between you pull up to Winterland and you go out a quarter to nine, the devil came in your room and made a deal with you, correct? You signed a deal with the devil. Absolutely, yes. The devil showed up. 
Yes. Poured himself a drink, sat down, and said, Peter, 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 Peter. Let's cut, let's cut to the chase. It was chase. Peter Cook, actually. It was Peter Cook. Cook right. <laughs> and, he's, and he said, let's make a deal. Or I'm the devil. And the devil <laughs> makes this deal with you because what happened? First of all, there's probably, I th- if I'm not mistaken, if there wasn't 7,500 people out there, then I thought there were, but it's, it definitely sounds like it. It's a big room. They go nuts when we walk out, and it just takes you to a different level, you know? It felt good. It was one of those shows when you come off and you look at the band and you just go, I wish we'd recorded that. That was, like, so good, man. And then we went, oh, we did! You, <laughs> you know, we you did record that. We forgot we were... You see, the event was so much more important than the recording. I don't even remember the truck being there. Recording is June of 1975, and it's released when? We're still mixing right up, up before Christmas, and then it comes out, I believe, on like January 17th or something like that. Of 76. Nin- Jan- January 9th or, yeah, of 76. Yeah. And what happens? Well, I knew we were going to tour the whole year, so right after Christmas, I went down to the Bahamas for 10 days and relaxed. Before I left, we had put one show on at Cobo Hall in Detroit, which is a big room. And that's all I knew. And so I go away and I don't call anybody. I'm just on the beach and snorkeling, whatever. I come back, we've sold four shows out. And I said, what happened, you know? And the album has just started to be on the radio, you know? And um, that's when everything just went went through the roof, you know. It, after all this time, people think it, it is overnight, but it's not overnight no. in the scheme of things. No. No. But, but, it's but, a huge leap for you. Yes. But it's not overnight success. But it is, it's a heady experience. Is this still the highest selling live album of all time? Or it's, it's, it's in dispute. But, right, right. Yeah, but, but it's but, up there. Yeah, because my record is only counted as one one album, a certain other artist had it made so that you could count. Um, if you released six CD uh, live set, you can count it six times. Well, they didn't do that retroactively. So in my mind, it's still the biggest seller. Sure. Yes. It was almost unbelievable the amount of success. You get these phone calls in quick succession. You're number one in, in the charts, you know. And I, I'm going, wait a second. Say that one more time, and who are you? And then within three or four weeks of that, I get the call saying, it's the biggest selling record of all time. You've just outsold Carol King's Tapestry. And it's... um, Was that the time you thought you had to start numbing yourself? Yeah, it was crazy because people just wanted... You didn't know how to deal with that. No, it was very hard. You don't know how to deal with how people treat you differently. Exactly. And, And being always being respectful and and never really thinking of myself as anything special because I've never been... That's just not my character. And what good does it do you? I felt embarrassed that I was that... This entity became... It was me over here, you know. 
Yes, it was very hard to deal with, yeah. But were you proud of the record? Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. When something really big hits in the entertainment business, it's like feast or famine. It's either, it's not a hit, movie, record, whatever, and nothing comes in. Or it's like a blockbuster and all this money comes in and it all comes into one place. And when you see a pile of money like this, it brings out thoughts that people didn't normally have before. You know what I mean? It's the, um, the availability of all that cash all at once, you know, that... Well, especially in the music business, because yeah. there's nothing like the music business for making money. Except for the fact that music is free now. Well, it's, it is different now, yeah. I mean, you used to tour to promote the record. And now? Now you make the record to promote the tour. The record is a giveaway. The CD is a giveaway. The dollars are on the live performing. Yes. That's how it is for you. Well, yeah, that's all. And that's most all. artists. Yeah, and luckily my reputation is as a live performer, so it, it's been phenomenal for me. But it's hard work touring, but I love it, so that's not hard work for me. You came into New York recently, and you did that at the Beacon here in New York. Correct? Yes. And how many shows did you do? For most of 13 months, we were doing five shows a week, and it's a three-hour show. So we were doing Comes Alive first, which is an hour and 40, and then we were doing uh, excerpts from everything else in my career as well for another hour and 15 or 20, you know. So it was, uh, <laughs> we were killing ourselves. How did it feel? Well, it felt great. The place went nuts. Yeah. You know, they just went berserk. You know, are you going to do it again? I, I don't know whether I'll do the entire thing again. Well, I've if it said, comes alive again. Not for a while. Okay. Anyway. God damn it! <laughs> no, no, you no. We filmed it, and you did um, film it. Yeah, at the Beacon and in. What um, are you going to do Milwaukee. with that? Where is that going? It's going to be a DVD. In fact, that's where I'm going on Sunday to go back home to my studio to mix the audio. What are you going to do with it? You're going to release it as a just as a DVD or DVD, as a film yes. in theaters or on TV? No, it'll probably just be a DVD. And, and you don't want to do this on TV? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, have you got an in there? Maybe. Oh, I can't believe if it's a document. Are there any backstage footage? Um, I've got the story, and and it's filmed of when my guitar was returned. What happened to that guitar? What's the story? Well. Um, First of all, we're talking about the guitar that's on the front cover of Comes Alive, which I got given to me by Mark Mariana in 1970 when I was playing the Fillmore West with Humble Pie. And I was having a terrible time with the guitar that I had at that, that night. And Mark said to me, you know, I could see you having problems with that. Do you want to try my Les Paul tomorrow? I said, well, I'm not really big on Les Pauls, but okay, all right, anything's better than this. So he brought it to me, I played it. I don't think my feet touched the ground the entire night. It's the best guitar I've ever played. You know, a 54 Les Paul. 54 Les Paul. So then I played that guitar on Rock On and also of Humble Pie and also Rock in the Fillmore. That's the guitar I use on there. Basically, I use that exclusively. It's the only guitar I play all the way through all my solo records and including... Frampton Comes Alive. And you were never tempted to put that down? And put you, that was it? That was you it. You married that guitar? Yes, yes. It was just this <laughs> one. I had a 55 Strat that I would always use for Show Me The Way because I needed a cleaner sound, you uh -huh. know. So that was, that was on Show Me The Way. So then we get to touring South America in 1980. We just finished playing Caracas, Venezuela, and we had a day off 
And so we flew commercially to Panama, waiting for the gear to arrive on a cargo plane. Well, it never got off the runway in Caracas. It crashed on takeoff. My road manager came to me. I'm having this huge meal on my day off with my wife at the time. And he said, I got some bad news. And he says, the plane crashed on takeoff. I said, my guitar? Yeah. He said, mm-hmm. And like six people, loading people, the pilot, the co-pilot, loading inspector, all that. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, oh people God. died. So that took oh, precedent oh, over oh, everything. Yeah, then it put it in perspective, you know. And there's the pilot's wife sitting at the bar oh. uh, who doesn't know yet. It was horrendous. So anyway, we limped through the end of that tour, basically, with borrowed equipment, sent someone down, my guitar tech at the time, a week later to see what was left. Nothing was left supposedly. And what had happened, the tail had broken off. Guitars were actually in a trunk. In cases. In cases. And the way the story goes is they had a guard to guard the crash site, the debris site, till the insurance people came down. And he decided that the guitars would be much safer at his house. No. Yes. and In and, Caracas. Yes, in Caracas. This is 1980. 1980. Two years ago... Which is 30 years later. 30 years later. I opened my info at frampton.com email because anybody can email me and I see them all. I open up this one and there's a picture, a photograph of my guitar. Slightly singed, but <laughs> but it's Gloriously my last. singed. <laughs> right at the top, you know. Uh, slightly singed. But, but there it is. There's a picture and I thought, could this you be? You see this picture where? In an email to me from someone who'd got a hold of the guitar as it happens in Curaçao, which is a little island off the coast of Caracas, someone had um, sold it to this gentleman and he took it to someone who fixed guitars and they knew what it was. And it took two years of a very gray area. And was he saying, like, I don't want to get processed, I want to get this guitar to you, but I don't want to go to jail? That was the thing. No really? one wanted to actually come. It wasn't come. about money. It wasn't about him. He wanted to. They, they, there was money involved. He, but would, he would have appreciated a gratuity. There was a reward talked about. But every time it would get close to someone coming in, they'd find something reason why they couldn't come in. So that's why it took two years. And then in the end... The guy actually checked to see if we had booked him a hotel because he just saw himself in handcuffs at Miami Airport. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he knew who had it, and the person who had it needed some money, and so he went to the tourist bureau of Curaçao and said, look, if you lend me the money or give me the money to go buy this, I can find this. This will be a great tourism story for Curaçao. And, um, they did? And they did, and they came, and the two of them, the tourism president of the tourism board from the government and the gentleman who found the guitar knew where it was, brought it to Nashville. We had three cameras as soon as he waiting. walked in. Waiting. And what happens? Well, the two gentlemen walk in and he's got it in this probably one of the worst looking gig bags I've ever seen in my life. Cheap old plastic thing. He puts it beside him, you know, and he tells the story in broken English of how this person had it, and the whole thing. He hands it to me, and he goes, feel it, Peter, feel it. So, and I know that 
he knows because it was the lightest Les Paul I'd ever played. So I just felt it in the case, and I went, oh, this could be it, you know. Opened it up, I just looked at it, and I just feel it like that, and I go, it's my guitar. Oh, how badly was it singed? Where? Just around the very top. Uh, it, it lost the binding around the, the headstock. Did you get that replaced? No, I didn't. I left, left it, it. I've left it with its battle yeah. scars. Yeah. I, I, Gibson made it playable. Yeah. So we refretted it. You call that the Caracas kiss yeah. <laughs> on the tip there. And does it sound the same? Does it feel the same? Oh, my God. It's not God. damaged at all? N- no. Just that singe. Yeah, and when I first played it at rehearsals with the band, everybody had this, like, Cheshire cat grin on their face <laughs> because it has this sound, and it sounds like Frampton Comes Alive. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you don't have to try too hard. And you got that back when? I got it back just before we started touring in February and March for the last American leg. I used it a little bit at rehearsals, and then I brought it out for the first night at the Beacon. I think the guitar is more famous than I am now. Rock legend Peter Frampton. I'm Kathleen Russo. Thanks for listening to my first attempt at hosting Here's the Thing. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Carrie Donahue, Zach McNeese, and yours truly. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Alec is back next week talking with an amazing politician, California Democratic Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.